Amen. Uh, last time we were together, we, we introduced ourselves to Paul, okay, the Apostle Paul. In, uh, in fact, he was introduced as Saul, right? That was his name uh, as a, uh, a Jew, as a Pharisee, as a leader in, um, the, the, in, in, in the temple. And when we saw Saul, um, he was going before the high priests uh, to get warrants for the arrest of Christians, and it was his prerogative, it was his uh, purpose in life uh, to shut down this uprising, this movement, this faith movement uh, that people were referring to as Christianity. Okay, uh, People that were following the teachings of Jesus Christ, they were giving their lives to the call of Jesus Christ. Uh, he took great offense of, uh, at that, and he and a group of other Jewish men decided they, they were going to set out towards Damascus, where there was a growth and a development of Christian, uh, Christians in this region, they were going to go there and they were going to make arrests. And as they set out to do this, uh, they are surprised on the road to Damascus. Uh, they're met with a, a blinding light. And uh, the men that were with Saul, they heard what sounded like most likely thunderings. They couldn't make out or articulate what was being said, but Saul could hear every word of it. And it was the voice of Jesus Christ, and he was, he was made blind, he fell to his knees, and um, the voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And this was Jesus Christ telling Saul that, um, that he was up to no good, he was calling him out. And, and the conviction set in immediately, and Paul replies, who art thou, Lord? In other words, he recognized the, 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 this was the Lord, that this was the authority, that this was the Creator. Okay, But he didn't know yet who this was. So he cries out and he says, Who are you, Lord? And the reply was, Jesus Christ. I am Jesus. So the next question becomes, becomes What wilt thou have me to do? And he says, Arise and go. And Saul says, Okay. Now, we learned a lot from this message last week just in terms of how we ought to posture ourselves uh, at the moment of our salvation. What does salvation look like in our lives? Right? We talked about uh, the need to make Christ Lord. It's not good enough to recognize God, but we have to recognize that Christ is our Lord. And at the moment of salvation, it is absolutely necessary that he goes from just being our Savior to being the Lord and the Master of our lives. We talked about that. But we also talked about how in our daily lives, as we come to God's Word, we need to retain that kind of posture. We need to be on our knees. We need to be broken before God. We need to ask Him, Lord, what, will it, what is it that you would have me to do? And we talked about that as a lifestyle for Christianity. And we talked also about how Paul is this example for us in our faith, Right? Paul is to be an example to us of how we should conduct Christianity, how we should understand God's Word, and how we should live it out. We remember that in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. In other words, Saul is an, uh, Paul is an ultimate example to us of who we should be and how we should walk in our Christian faith. And we need to look to his life and see, okay, so what does it look like to live as a believer in God's word? What does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? And as we continue to see Paul's life, 
He's going to be that example for us even today. Okay, even today. I want to briefly read um, 1 Timothy verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 12. I think it's on the screen. And Paul, in thinking back on this moment in his life, in this, this road to Damascus experience, reflects to Timothy this way. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. In other words, this is who I was in my flesh. This is the man that I was before I knew God. But listen to what he says. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. In, the other, in other words, what he says is, I, my life is the pattern that people should look to to see just how exceedingly great the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ truly is. And how I am the chief of sinners. I'm the very worst. I was a persecutor of Christians. I was a murderer. And yet God redeemed me. And I can have victory. And I can follow after Jesus Christ in that victory and in that grace. And I, and I pray that people would look unto me, Paul the Apostle, of what it means to obtain and lay hold on the mercy of Jesus Christ. He says, all my life was wasted and I was delivered from the worst kinds of sin. And God made me an example of His mercy and grace. I'm a pattern for salvation. And I want to ask you this morning, what about your life? See, you're not any different than Paul. There was a moment in your life where you repented of your sin and you laid hold on the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And the question becomes, are you going to live as an exemplar? Just like Paul did. An exemplar of what it means to live in that grace. See, just like Paul, we talked about this before, Paul was shaped by all these experiences that he had. You know, he, he was well-educated, right? He had a particular, particular life before he met Jesus Christ. And what life did you have before you knew Jesus? In what ways were you shaped? And, what, and how, how did the nurturing that was in your life, the upbringing that you had, the experiences that you had, for good or for bad, how did they shape you? Mm. Yeah. How did those experiences shape you? And are you willing to, to let God take those things about your life, for good and for bad, and redeem them for the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ, that He might pattern in you what it means to be redeemed. That your life might be an exemplar of salvation the same way Paul's was. And I think there's some of us who are unwilling this morning. We're unwilling. We're unwilling. We're unwilling to live in light of grace and mercy. And so what we're going to look at today, I, I, wanna, I want you to see exactly what Paul was up against. All right? 
And I want you to look at his life. And what we're going to talk about today is how to come into the body of Christ and prove out what God has done in your life. In other words, what does it mean to begin a pattern of good works? What does it mean to be marked by your faith? See, Paul, his testimony up to this point what is it, was, it was that he was a murderer and a persecutor of Christians. How do you overcome that? Hey guys, I'm saved. You show up one day to church. Hey guys, I know last week I was killing you. But this week I want in. <laughs> right? Like how do, you, how do you go about proving what God has done in your life? How do you do that? This was, this was a huge hurdle for Paul. This was a huge hurdle for, for, hurdle for Paul. And you know what? Every one of us has experienced hurdles like this. How do we go from a pattern of wickedness to being marked, to being branded believer, follower of Jesus, pattern of good works, faith-filled Christian, mature minister of God? How do we go from one to the other? And there's some people in this room this morning, I know you, I know your situations, you're having a hard time undoing what was in order to prove out what is. Does that make sense? And so we're going to talk about what Paul did, and we're going to use him as an example to help us understand how we should be living. And this is going to be very practical today. Very, very practical. Let's start with this story of what, what Paul does when he gets to Damascus. Can we start there? So start in verse 10. And we're going to briefly cover this experience that he has with this man named Ananias. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. Okay, there's a lot to be said even about that statement, right? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called straight. It's funny how, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but even in this story just here, in Acts chapter 9, the command of Christ has been twice now, arise and go. And we see this over and over again in Scripture. The purpose of man's life is to arise and to go. Is to arise and go. What other living is there besides the type that says, arise from your brokenness and move forward in the purpose that I've set forth for you? And he says, arise and go into the street which is called straight. Okay, I could spend 30 minutes on that. We're not going to. And inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And I've seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to the saints of Jerusalem. In other words, I know his testimony. This guy is wicked. This guy is nasty. And you're telling me I'm supposed to go to him and lay my hands on him and give, it, and give him his sight. And he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer Mm. for my namesake. 
And Ananias went his way, no more questions. Went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, you see how quick that, that worked for Ananias? Even Jesus that appeared unto me in the way as thou camest hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. See, Ananias had proof that Saul had been saved. Christ himself had revealed to him that Paul was to be accepted. And Ananias heard the voice of Jesus Christ and he moved forward in light of that. But listen to me. The real question moving forward here is how is he going to be accepted by the disciples and the apostles and among the churchgoers? Right? Well, Ananias had the privilege of Jesus Christ coming to him and saying, hey, look, this is what I got for you. This is what I want you to understand about who Saul is. The other believers didn't have that privilege, you understand? I mean, Saul had gone to great lengths to make sure that his testimony was one of hatred and anger towards Christians. How would he be received? Now what we're going to do is we're going to watch here as the Spirit of God helps Paul reinvent himself. He takes on an entirely new identity, and in time, he proves to the other Christians that his faith is real and serious. And some of you in this room need the same thing. You need to reinvent yourself. You need to take on a new identity, and it's going to take you time. It's going to take you time. See, this kind of transformation is only possible when a Christian chooses to serve God, not man. So if you take it upon yourself to prove to me who you are now, guess what? It ain't going to work. See, here's key point number one. A testimony of authentic faith can only be established through authentic faith. It's the only way. If you take it upon yourself to live in good works, to prove to me, to prove to the other ministers that you are changed, guess what? You could fool us. But in time, your fakery your works will fail. But faith, faith in Jesus Christ does not fail. Because you, ultimately you cannot fake a life in God. You can't do it. You know, we looked at this example in Simon the Sorcerer. You guys remember that? Just a chapter previously, we saw that a man named Simon tried to fake a conversion so that he could get in with these new popular Christians, right? He was trying to get in. He saw the power that they had, and he wanted a piece of that, and so he faked a conversion experience, and in time, he got found out, didn't he? See, in order for the church to extend trust to you, I mean, all of us want to be trusted, don't we? I want to be trusted. I mean, in many regards, I am still always just proving that I am a person worthy to be trusted in. I mean, even among the other pastors. This is how relationships work, by the way. All relationships work this way. See, in order for the church to extend trust to us, oversight, 
Responsibility. Who doesn't want to be considered a responsible individual? See, one must be proven over time that they are faithful. So let's look at Paul's growth and development as he proves his faith. The very first mark of an authentic faith is this. Like I said, it's very practical. It's baptism. It's baptism. The very first proof in our lives that our faith is authentic is baptism. In Scripture, we see this. Let's look at what Paul did. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized immediately. The Holy Spirit comes into his life. The scales drop from his eyes and immediately he does one thing. He goes and he gets baptized. You know, in Scripture, we see an incredible emphasis on baptism as the thing that you do immediately after you believe. Now, we've gotten in this weird habit in the church. Like, like for instance, I, w- I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And out of fear, okay, I was six years old. Out of fear, it wasn't until I was 12 that I was baptized. And it's a really weird thing. We get in this habit of, of making the baptism part optional. And the truth is, it's not really optional. It's not really optional. Now, your salvation is not, we've covered this already. Your salvation is not contingent on whether or not you get dunked in water. But the proof of your faith is in many regards contingent on whether or not you choose to do the very first act of obedience that God has called you to do. And there are people in this room who are holding out on that first act of obedience. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, we see this example. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. This is, this is the jailer that comes to accept Jesus Christ when Paul and Silas are in, are in the uh, jail cell. Remember this story? Some of you are familiar with this. And thou shalt be saved. Call on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, Master Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all, and all his straightway. That word straightway says immediately. That means immediately. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. You know, in some regards, we wait to get baptized because, of, because we're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid of being in front of people. All right? We're afraid of getting up in front of a crowd and going through the process and getting in the water and coming out. You know, um, what if the baptismal ga- gown rides up my butt? You know, these are real fears, okay? Come out of the water, it's sticking, what do I wear? I don't want to give a testimony. Um, what if, you know, whatever. What, like, whatever, ex- like, it's amazing the number of excuses that we allow to enter into our mind that Satan uses, us, uses to bring fear into our lives when all the while God is telling us the very first act of obedience is to go get in that water. I'm so thankful for some of the testimonies recently of people who've been baptized in the past or maybe have put off baptism, who've chosen to be baptized again in order to prove what God is doing in their lives. Here's key point, number one, or number two, sorry. Baptism marks our personal surrender to Christ. That's what it does. 
Baptism marks or it declares our personal surrender to Christ. Baptism is a mark on your life that tells Christians, I am one of you and I am with you. Paul's baptism was not just obedience to Christ, but it functioned to ease the tension surrounding his conversion, didn't it? The act of baptism is intended to be a brand on your life to prove that you have begun a new life, a new life of faith. That's what it does. And so if we're talking today about the marks of faith, about proving out your faith, then the very first thing that some of us should consider is whether or not we should be baptized. The next thing is fellowship. The next thing is fellowship. See, it wasn't baptism alone that that proved out who Paul was. It's what followed baptism. Verse 19, And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was saw certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. See, what we find here is that without hesitation, Paul, Paul interjects himself into the community of believers. And the very first thing that they do together is break bread and eat meat. That's absolutely amazing. See, the same people that he had come to Damascus to persecute, he was now breaking bread with. Can you imagine what that meal would have looked like? Right? All the believers in Damascus, they're getting ready to have dinner. In walks Paul. Right? Everybody's it's awkward. Everybody's sitting around the dinner table. They're looking at each other like, you know, whispering beneath their, you know. But, but they start breaking bread together. And they begin talking, right? And you can almost see that, that the tension slowly begins to lift. And pretty soon, he's a part of the fellowship of believers in Damascus. And they're beginning to accept him. In this case, the fellowship of the Damascus table had the power to heal the wounds of persecution, failure, and hatred that had come before. This is is the type of forgiveness that Jesus Christ extends to us. The very people that put him on the cross to die. He accepts and he loves completely. It's always amazing to me when I think about Jonah. Right? Jonah was given a job. Go to Nineveh and preach this message. He refused to do that. I mean, it was kind of a messy situation, wasn't it? He boards a ship, okay? He heads out across the sea. God makes him get swallowed by a whale. I mean, this is just not, this is not your best life, right? He ends up in Nineveh. He preaches what I would consider to be a very, like, I mean, it's, this isn't the best message I've ever heard, right? He makes it as short and brief as possible, and he's out. But it's always amazing to me that God entrusted Jonah with the very thing that he had previously failed to do. In other words, God's logic is completely different than ours. It says that, that someone that has failed me I have the capacity to forgive them to the point where I don't withhold from them 
any of the purposes. I can, I can give that to them and set them back out into the world. I can pick them up and I can send them back out. I can pick them up and I can do that over and over and over again because I'm God and I, and I love my creation. And the, the, the really interesting thing is when we're filled with the Spirit of God, we have the capacity to love people in the same way where we don't have to withhold. We can actually help pick them up and set them out into the purpose of God. And that's what happens here at the Damascus table. That begins to happen. Forgiveness is beginning to take place. Fellowship is beginning to be had. And I want to point something out to you. That fellowship is a crucial mark on the life of a believer that proves whether or not they live in the love of God. So key point number three, our willingness to fellowship marks our willingness to love those God loves. It declares something. I love you because God loved me, and so I want to be with you. I want to know you. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as ye see the day approaching. See, here's the point. Many of us, we want to be seen as faithful people, but we neglect the work of fellowship. We want to be marked by our faith. We want to be recognized by our faith, but yet we're not doing we're not doing fellowship right. We're not entering into fellowship with other believers. So you can't expect your Christianity to be right if you don't consistently attend church. When the, when the, here in Hebrews 10, we're told when the believers come together and assemble, you're there. You don't forsake that work. You come together. When the brethren gather, you gather. That's what Christians do. They fellowship. So you can't expect that you, you will have loving relationships with people in Kaya or MBT if you don't attend a Bible study and build meaningful relationships. See, you can't expect that people are going to entrust you with ministry responsibility if people, if people can't grow to know your heart. If you don't let people in, then guess what? They won't know you. Fellowship is a crucial mark on the believer's life. Proving out your faith demands that consistent fellowship be a mark of true maturity. We need to appreciate the fact that, that healthy fellowship was necessary before Paul could be accepted as an apostle. See, likewise, our fellowship allows us to be accepted among the brethren as, a, as a disciples of Jesus Christ. And so some of you are like, well... I don't really fit in. You know, the Bible teaches this really simple principle. If you want friends, you have to show yourself to be friendly. You choose whether or not to have fellowship. If you want to stay out on the periphery, guess what? You're only going to end up out in, 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 in darkness and wandering. 
But to press into fellowship means to be accepted. People can't, you know, there's some of us in this room who get off on being chased constantly. You know what I'm talking about? Like you've, you've built habits into your life where you, you demand that believers constantly be chasing after you. Well, if I, if I just step out here and act a little helpless, maybe they'll come after me. And you're forcing people to prove their love to you when it's your responsibility to prove your love to them. Paul didn't hesitate. He entered into fellowship. Get out of the periphery and enter into that fellowship and prove out what God's done in your life. The next mark of faith was that Paul exercises his natural desire to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Verse 20, And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So the proof on our our lives, the next proof here, the next mark on our lives about whether or not we are people of faith is whether or not Preaching is the outpouring of our lives. You know, it's, it's got to be true of us that, that we can't shut up about what Jesus did in our lives. That's got to be true of us. And it's a mark of maturity. It's a mark of faith that I want to tell the story of how Christ found me and delivered me. That's, that's, that's only natural. You know, there's this great story. I, I love this story in Matthew 9, 27, where two blind men come to Jesus, and they, they want to be delivered from their blindness. And it says in verse 27, And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, hath mercy, uh, have mercy on us, And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their uh, their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. Isn't that a funny request? Hey, keep this hush-hush. I know I just healed you, but keep it hush. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. They couldn't help but talk about it. And it's amazing to me how many of us have accepted the love of Jesus Christ unto salvation and have refused to open our mouth. I mean, we were saved from death and destruction. And other people are on the path towards death and destruction. And we're not going to open our mouths? We're not going to speak up? Key point. Our willingness to preach the gospel marks our ownership of the mission. 
I'm going to tell this story, and I'm going to expose my, my worldliness from my, my childhood. Um, I, you know, I used to be a rabble-rouser, okay? I'll just put it that way. I hate telling these stories from my past because it makes me just seem so awful, like such an awful person, and I was. I was awful, and I'll just declare that now. But I, but I did have a sense of justice. I remember there was this one time, I had a, a younger friend. I was probably 16. I had a friend who was like 15, and he had gotten into some sort of argument with someone else, and it had gone multiple weeks. And, and, and uh, you know, culturally where I come from, uh, when, when there's prolonged argument, it usually ends up in a physical altercation. Okay? And so this friend of mine was going to meet up with another guy the place had been set, and they were going to, they were going to box it out, okay? All right, has anybody, does anybody know, remember this from high school? Anybody ever have these men, experiences? You go to the fight at the park. I'm the only, I'm the only wicked one. I'll just declare that now. So, so this, this is a thing, right? Now, we showed up to this house, and uh, this buddy of mine was going to fight this guy, and the car pulls up. And the guy is in the back seat, and he doesn't get out, but a guy with a beard does, grown man of some sort, okay? And he gets out of the car, and he comes out, and he says, all right, who, who was it was going was gonna to fight my cousin? Who was it the one? So this guy gets out of the car, and he wants to fight this younger friend of mine. Well, I couldn't let that happen. So I said, I'll fight you. <laughs> that wasn't the voice that I said it with. It was, it was a much more, that's, the, that's me looking back. The voice that I should have had, the, the voice of trepidation. Uh, but I engaged this guy in a fight, and I won. Now, I found out later that he was 20, I was 16, he was 21 at the time. Didn't know that. If I knew that, I would have probably been a little bit more cautious in my approach. But here's the point. First point is, I was evil and wicked and probably could have diffused this if I knew how. But I didn't. I, I did the only thing that I knew how to do. And I engaged in the fight. But, so here's my point. That guy that I stood in the gap for, he loves me. You know why? Because I was willing to engage in the fight. See, I proved to him something that day, that I had his back because I engaged. I was for him. I wasn't going to let anything bad happen to him. So I stepped in, and I do, did the thing that I knew how to do. And here's my point. That's a very worldly illustration. But from a spiritual perspective, we prove our love to one another by our willingness to engage in the mission. Are you willing to preach the gospel? Are you willing to speak out? And when we learn how to do that, we're telling one another, look, I'm mission-minded just as you are. And so Paul's willingness to go out and preach proves something to the church, that he was with them. I'm on your team. He comes right out the gate and enters into the fight, and everyone around him saw it. 
It is a true mark of a believer that we all desire to see souls saved. See, someone who gets the gospel has no choice in their heart to be, but to declare, declare the good news. That's, they have no choice but to do that. And that's where Paul was at, and it proved something in him. Next, verse 21. He was a student of the word, but all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on, the, on, this, name in, on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? Okay, so they're questioning him. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. So here's the point. Look at the knowledge that Paul had. Okay, you see that? He confounded them. They were amazed at his knowledge of Jesus Christ. So how could that be? How could it be? How is it that he had so much knowledge? Okay? So one thing that we have to know is that this story doesn't make the entire narrative clear. Okay, we have to go to Galatians chapter 1 to see the entirety of this narrative. When Paul writes about what happened after his conversion. Okay, so look at this account real quick. Galatians chapter 1 verse 11. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached unto me, uh, preached of me, is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my uh, conversation in times past in the, in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited it in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceeding, exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem, to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. And then after three years, I went unto Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. Okay, to make a long story short, what we learn here is that Paul, he didn't go, when he accepted Christ, he didn't go immediately to Peter to get discipled. He went to Arabia and spent three years, a gap period, Three years in Arabia, studying at the feet of Jesus Christ himself. See, no man revealed to him these truths. But it was through God's word and revelation that Paul himself was discipled. Now I want to point out to you that Paul spent three years this way. Just like the disciples spent three years studying at the feet of Jesus. Paul, too, needed three years to study at the feet of Jesus Christ. In other words, before Paul preached in Damascus, he took a three-year hiatus to get discipled in Arabia, to prepare himself and to be with God. So here's my point to you. The mark of a faithful disciple is whether or not they're willing to submit to the authority of God's word through discipleship. Key point, our submission to discipleship marks our willingness to grow. When we see a person willing to sign up for Costa Discipleship, to enter into a mentorship relationship, to submit to the authority of God's word, to be invested in 
and for someone to share their life with them and to pour into them the same way Paul poured into Timothy, then what we see is a mark of maturity. See, it proves something to, to me as a pastor when I see that someone's willing to, when someone comes to me and says, hey, Brandon, I just signed up for Casa Discipleship, and they've got that look of, dis, uh, of excitement in their face. I know something in that moment. I know that this person is choosing to be faithful. And you know what? I think they're one of us. I think, I think this person is one of us. And then they go through the discipleship process and I see that they're willing to submit to the teaching and they're willing to submit to the authority of the person that's teaching them, the leader that's teaching them. And I watch that process unfold and it tells me something and it communicates something to the church body. It proves to us that you're going to be faithful. That you're in. See, by the time he returns to Damascus, Paul is doctrinally sound in every regard and ready to confound the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. You know, it's really interesting to know if you study the scriptures, you know, there's this moment where Paul does go to Jerusalem. And he stands before the apostles. And you know what everyone says? Yeah, his doctrine matches up with ours exactly. That's, that's basically the conversation. They, they talk. They talk about the ministry that they've been doing. And Peter and everybody around is like, you know what? This guy, Paul, he's no joke. And what he's preaching sounds just like the things that we preached. You know why? Because they all were discipled by Jesus Christ. Pretty amazing thing. It brings us, discipleship brings us into that kind of unity where we can all be speaking from the same script. The next mark is suffering. It's suffering. Verse 23, And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was, was, known, uh, uh, was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. See, the result of Paul's preaching was that the Jews in Damascus, previously his allies, mind you, now wanted to kill him. So the disciples lower him over the wall in a, in a basket. Well, like, I don't know about you, but I think about that. That's kind of a weird story, isn't it? I mean, these guys... They're not, they're not just stealthy, but they're creative. But, but what we see here is that these disciples that it mentions, we see the unity between them and Paul, don't we? We see that unity's been built. But the more pressing point is this. The mark of a true believer has everything to do with whether or not someone's willing to accept the suffering of Jesus Christ as a way of life. We talked about this before a little bit. The lifestyle of the apostles was that they refused to fear men. And because they refused to fear men, they were going to obey God regardless of what it cost them. No matter what, they were going to obey. They were not concerned about the consequences whatsoever. They were going to obey Christ, not men. And it put them in a position where they were just going to naturally have to suffer persecution because of that. Hardship was going to come their way. So key point, our willingness to endure hardship with joy 
marks our level of surrender to God. It communicates something, doesn't it? You know, a lot of times in ministry, what we see is someone who's a disciple of Jesus Christ, they come up against an issue in life, a hardship, a point of suffering. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes they leave. Sometimes they hide. Sometimes they don't answer phone calls. They go off the grid. We've all experienced that. If you've discipled or if you've invested in people for any amount of time, you've experienced this. A hardship enters someone's life, and rather than choosing faith, they choose to hide. They choose fear. But we know that faith does not have, there's no ounce of fear in a person that's full of the love and the faith of Jesus Christ. We know that. And so what we can see as a proof of someone's faith is that when they're going through hardship, they engage. They press in. They don't back out. When the suffering comes, they call on their brothers and sisters in Christ to engage with them. I mean, these guys are lowering Paul over the wall in a basket. They're there for one another. They're unified. And because Paul is willing to endure suffering, he proves to that, th- those young believers, that church in Damascus, that he means, he means business. That he is a Christian through and through. It's a proof. You know, later in, law, in, in Paul's life, he would go on to write things like this. Philippians chapter 3.10 says, That I may know him, meaning Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Who writes something like that? If you don't mean that, don't pin it. But this was the spirit in him. Romans 8, 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, the disciples in Damascus could see in Paul a willingness to endure pain for the sake of the cross. They knew that at the first sign of persecution, he wouldn't take off and run. He wasn't going to leave them in the lurch. He was there with them. Now, what about you? Is that true of your life as well? When things get harder, are you going to dip out for a season? You're going to have an excuse for why you couldn't press in? Or are you going to choose to stay with the squad? If suffering causes you to turn and run, maybe it's time for you to reconsider whether or not you want the same things that the church does. Maybe it's time to lock arms with brethren and begin to glory in your infirmity as well. Mark number six. He was faithful. He was steady. Verse 26 says, And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. You catch that? So there's the dilemma. You know, I want to point to you this, this truth as well. You know, this is wise on the, point, uh, on the part of the apostles. Paul shows up to Jerusalem 
it's right that they're a little bit cynical. Like, think about this for a moment. These are the men that experienced Judas. Right, for three years they walk with this guy and he betrays them. You understand? It's prudence on their part to try him out, to prove him out. See, these are the people that experienced Ananias and Sapphira. These are the people that experienced Simon the sorcerer. They've been betrayed before. And so the persecutor, the persecutor of the Christian church shows up at their doorstep and they say, we're afraid of him. No one should be surprised by that. We shouldn't feel bad for Paul. But listen to me, verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So someone testifies on his behalf. Now look at verse 28. This is what the apostles do. They, they allow him to join with them and prove himself out. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him, which when the, when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth uh, to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. See, initially, the other believers had a hard time knowing whether or not Saul was genu- genuine. His reputation had gone before him. But Barnabas vouches for him, and they let him, they invite him to walk with them. They say, okay, the apostles say, okay, we're going we're gonna to be coming in and out of Jerusalem. I'm going to be doing these missions trips. And you're going you're gonna to come with us. And we're going to watch you. And we're going to see how that goes. And we're going to let you prove yourself. So they invite him along, and he, and he proves himself out. Now listen to me. I want, to, I want to point out something to you. If someone isn't willing to help with the everyday responsibilities of the church, then it does put their faith in question. That shouldn't surprise any of us. If someone isn't willing to say, yeah, I'll prove myself, what do you want me to do? Pick up the chairs? Done. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Well, you want me to be here at 7 on time? You want me to be, here, be on time? I'm on time. I'm there. Oh, I should be faithful to Bible study? Okay. Oh, you guys meet for prayer meetings on Tuesdays. I'm there. And they come, and they're consistent, and they're faithful, and they're trustworthy. And in time, they prove to the brethren that they are who they say they are. That the pattern of their good works proves out their faith. Daily Christian living, daily service, daily work in the administration of the church is where a person's faith is proven out. Key point. Our consistent and trustworthy service marks our faithfulness. It marks our faithfulness. It declares who we are in our heart. Is is Paul going to be there for the prayer meeting? Is he faithful to Bible study? Is he consistent in his ministry responsibilities? Is he on time? Yes, 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 yes. And so let's turn the tables. 
Are you reliable? Are you reliable? When it comes time to get your hands dirty, are you willing? And, and I want to say this especially to the men because sometimes I see this lacking in a, in a portion of the men in our ministry. It's the same guys that always volunteer to help in almost every situation. I'm not going to say any names, but there's, there's a group of men who whenever there's a need, they're there. And they step up and they sacrifice their time. And some, some of you, some of you, you exploit that. And rather than being the person who helps and lends a hand, you continually just play the part of, of the helpless individual. And you consume it upon your lust, other people's good service, instead of engaging and proving out your own faith. You know, as a teacher, it's amazing how many times I hear excuses about why someone can't turn in their homework. You know, we work, we're working on this project for three or four weeks now, right? And the due date comes, and you don't have it done. And you know what? About 2% of the time, those excuses are valid. 2%, maybe, right? It's a valid excuse. Yeah, okay, I believe you. Your dog died last night. And, and you are up till, you know, two in the morning. And, you know, it's, it's, there's like these things happen, right? But when you show up and you've got all these buts for why you can't, that doesn't prove to me that you're mature. And the same thing's true in ministry. The same thing's true in life. If you're constantly full of excuses for why you can't be reliable, then guess what? No one's going to give you any responsibility and no one's going to call you faithful. Don't be surprised by that. See, there are certain marks in the believer's life that prove out whether or not there's someone that can be relied upon. It proves out to the church body that you're going to be someone that's trustworthy, that's faithful. Paul was willing to prove all those things out, and he did so. Without hesitation, he was in it to win it from the beginning. But in 2019, man, Christians are so freaking soft. And you enter into this congregation and you want us to give you something. You want a position, a title, respect. Now listen, what I'll give you is love. What you give me is proof. Proof that Christ is alive in you, that you're in his word, that you're a true disciple, that you're willing to suffer persecution, that you're willing to preach the gospel at any cost. And we will prove that to one another. I'm not outside of that. It is my heart that as I serve the Lord, that I prove to you that I'm going to be with you, that I'm among the ranks. But listen to me, I can only do that as I pursue what Christ has for my life. I love him first. I put him first. I respect him first. I desire intimacy with Christ. I desire to preach his word. And the, and the truth is, over time, I will prove to you and you will prove to me that we are warring the same war. And the fight is shared. Amen? Amen. Now listen to me. If there are any, in any regards, there's anything in these marks that you fall short in, 
that as the worship team comes up, it's time for you to repent. It's time for you to, to submit to the example of Paul. And say to yourself, you know what? I do need to get baptized. That is the thing I do need to do. I know that. And I'm going to sign up and I'm going to do that. Because I want to obey the Lord. Um, you might be saying to yourself, I need to sign up for discipleship. I need to, I need to preach the gospel everywhere I go. I need, to, I need to learn to open my mouth and share the thing that Christ has shared with, shared with me. Whatever aspect of these marks that you know you fall woefully short in, then let's, let's repent of that right now. Can we do that? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, Lord. He is no perfect man. In fact, it took a weak man, the chief of sinners, to prove to us what is the right, the right pattern. Lord, you used the, 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 the most wicked of all men, the, the persecutor of your bride, to prove to us what it looks like to lay hold on mercy and grace, to be filled with it, to be consumed with faith, to live a life of devotion and surrender to Jesus Christ. Lord, we needed to see that. You knew we needed to see that. And Lord, we ask that the pattern that we see in Paul, Lord, would be true in our lives as well, Lord, that as we, as we seek to erase an old identity and to put away the carnal man, Lord, would you allow us to reinvent ourselves in the, in the person of Jesus Christ? That our, that our image might be conformed to the image of him. That our minds might be conformed to the way that he thought. Lord, we want to obey you. We want to preach your gospel. We want to suffer for your namesake. And we want to stand in lock arm with our brothers and sisters in Christ proving to one another that we are family. We are family. We are the children of God and we stand united. We, we will arise and we will go together and we will preach your gospel. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to have the marks of the faithful. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.